The communist commandos seemed to fire at anything that moved on and around the bridge, including this small corps of newsmen and women who were foolish enough to get themselves caught in the crossfire. For us, it seemed a good place not to be. Hillary Brown is a woman of many firsts. Notably, she was the first female foreign correspondent for ABC News, reporting from trouble spots around the globe from the early 1970s onward for more than 35 years, filing from every continent except Antarctica. From Vietnam, where she was one of the last journalists to be lifted by helicopter from the roof of the American embassy in Saigon. This seems to be the last chapter in the history of American involvement in Vietnam. It's also been the largest single movement of people in the history of America itself. Hillary Brown, ABC News, aboard the attack aircraft carrier USS Hancock in the South China Sea. To Sarajevo. The Winter Games left Sarajevo full of hope for the future and a legacy of superb sports facilities. All of them are either completely in ruins like the Zetra Stadium or made inaccessible by war. In addition to a stint on the CBC Toronto anchor desk. Good evening. General Augusto Pinochet has conceded defeat in a plebiscite that asked voters... We welcome to Hillary Brown to this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, to talk about her new memoir, War Tourist, which documents a well-lived life as well as some of the baggage that comes with a lifetime of covering conflict. The change is the direct result of the Washington Agreement. The U.S. brokered a core between Muslims and Croats that stopped the fighting in central Bosnia. Fragile as it is, it's being seen as a possible diplomatic success in this conflict. My name is Hillary Brown, and my tenuous claim to fame is that I was the first female foreign correspondent for the American television network, ABC News. And I was then a token woman in a man's world. And from 1973, for more than 35 years, I reported from trouble spots around the world, successively based, based in London, Paris, Tel Aviv, Rome, Washington, and New York. And in the 1980s, I anchored the six o'clock news on the CBC in Toronto. And that was an experience that I came to regard as death by hairspray. Uh, I returned to ABC News in the early 90s for another 18 years to do the uh, work that I love best, and that is foreign news reporting. So I was 69 when I finally hung up my bulletproof vest. And at the end of my career, I was profiled on TV Ontario's The Agenda with Steve Pakin as, quote, a trailblazer one of the greatest foreign correspondents this country has ever produced. This, of course, embarrasses me, but there it is. That's me. So what took you so long to write a memoir, Hillary? Well, I, I basically because I thought I couldn't remember anything. <laughs> I mean, people were nagging me all the time saying you should write a memoir. But I finally decided that... Um, I should just apply that dictum that Dorothy Parker evolved on the art of writing when she said the art of writing is to first apply ass to chair. And I found that when I did apply ass to chair, I, I could actually remember, remember quite a lot. Uh, and the other thing is that, um, you know, a memoir is not an autobiography. An autobiography has to be true. A memoir is what the author thinks happened. 
having said that, you know, I did engage a very good, very professional editor who did a fact check and a line and copy editing, of course, as well. So I think that my book is more or less true. Your recollections are very vivid, uh, or they appear to be vivid, Hillary. Did you <laughs> journal at all through some of those years? I did write uh, journals, but you know, Connie, I, and I reread them, you know, when I was writing the book, but I didn't find them all that interesting, maybe because they were so detailed. Uh, so I, 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 I mean, I did, I, I took little bits from my journals, you know, little um, memories. A, a lot of the material in there was, um, came out of, of chats with my old colleagues and friends. I mean, I contacted all my old friends, my old cameramen, my producers, people that I'd worked with. You know, what, do you remember what happened this time? And was this right? And, you know, checking things out with them. And they would remind me of things that I'd said or that I'd done. But on the whole, I think, Actually, I do have quite a good memory. Yes, I do have quite a good memory. And the other thing is the internet, the dreaded internet, is very useful when it comes to, you know, checking what happened during the, the, the Bosnian War, how long was it, how many people killed, uh, from what date to what date, and that sort of thing. And I did a lot of fact-checking myself before I submitted the whole manuscript to a fact-checker. One of the things I like about this book is how you take the time to set up some of the events in your formative years that led to you deciding that being an international journalist was going to be your calling. And there's a line in which you, you talk about your nomadic childhood with your entomologist father in which you say, that was when I first learned that you never feel more alive than when you think you may soon be dead. <laughs> <laughs> and that's absolutely right. It really was because, you know, my, we were roaming around Europe uh, in the 50s when it was not a tourist destination. I mean, it was, we were, we were driving along roads that were under construction. These were often roads that went along coastlines. So, yeah, I mean, quite often, I think we did come very close to buying it. And that was what was, I found terribly exciting, the fact that I survived. <laughs> You're often referred to as a groundbreaker in war zone reporting. And in the book itself, you talk often about being the token lady journalist. What made you want to continually pursue that ambition? I mean, the job itself is wonderful. Really, Connie, it's the best job in the world. Or certainly it was, you know, during my years. And what was it? It was 35, 40 years. It's absolutely the best job. I mean, it's just very exciting. You're, you know, you're roaming the globe and you're covering the world's trouble spots. And uh, it's, um, it's, it's it, and you're working with terrific people. Just absolutely the best job. Or was, I always felt it was the best job. You open the book with a harrowing story of being attacked by a mob in Tehran just months after giving birth to your son. But you've been in a lot of conflict zones. You were one of the last to evacuate at the fall of Saigon. You've been in mm -hmm. Bosnia, Iraq, Lebanon, and you mentioned some other places off the top. Do you have a top three in terms of the personal impact those events had on you? Well, yeah, I mean, I have to say, number one, maybe Vietnam, the fall of Saigon. It was a huge story, of course. I was one of the last North American reporters to be evacuated from the roof of the American embassy in Saigon. One of my pieces, or a clip from one of my pieces, was, was later uh, used in the motion, major motion picture, The Deer Hunter. 
it's something that absolutely astonished me. And that gave me what, my 15 seconds of fame, except that it actually ended up being 17 seconds that they used in the movie. And also because of, um, you know, the personal sort of contacts I had in, in Saigon at that time, specifically with a, a, my translator. And I, I actually had profiled the translator and his fears, you know, for his safety with the impending um, takeover of South Vietnam by the communist forces. And on the day of the evacuation, that final totally panic-stricken day, he came to me at the hotel in Saigon with his whole family, begging me to take him, to take him out, to take him with me. He, he feared for his life. And I, I had to tell him that, that I couldn't take him. I didn't see how I could take him. But I felt guilty about that for years, for years, until in 19, something like 1988, I'm then an anchor in Canada on CBC News in Toronto, and I'm contacted by a small group called the Mountain Fund to Save the Boat People. They asked me, would I help in their effort to save boat people who by then were in, in, in camps, terrible camps all across South, um, Southeast Asia. And of course I jumped at that chance because I was still thinking of my family that I left behind betrayed in, uh, in Saigon. And I went to the camps in Hong Kong, the boat people, the camps for the boat people. I did a documentary about this. I profiled the misery of their, uh, of their existence. I found a family that was, seemed to be almost exactly like the family that I'd left behind. They were living in cardboard boxes at Kai Tak Airport. And I went through the business of sponsoring this family. One year to the day of the broadcast of that documentary, my family arrived in Pearson Airport in Toronto. And I call that my reporter's atonement. You know, I felt I had felt guilty for so long and I atoned for my sin of leaving behind that family, that other family in Saigon. So that was, you know, very, it, it had huge personal significance for me. And by the way, I'm still in, in touch with that family. And the youngest, a baby, has just got her PhD at McMaster University. In right. How about that? Was there other emotional baggage that came with consistently having a front row seat to all of that conflict and misery? Well, it was again the, the always the, the, the feeling that you are you are documenting human misery and then leaving and then moving on. In fact, that's why I call my book War Tourist. This is what I think is the definition of a foreign correspondent. Foreign correspondents are like war tourists in flak jackets. They document human misery. And then they move on. They move on because they have to be. They move on to the next conflict. But they feel compassion for the people, the victims of the war that they've left behind. And they, and they feel guilty about leaving them behind. And so many of us do try to make amends, to atone in some way, just as I did for the, my, uh, my Vietnamese uh, translator family in Saigon. Uh, and and we, we, throughout my career as, as a foreign correspondent, yes, I've many times tried to help people if I could, if I can, just by giving them uh, food and money, uh, uh, carrying communications for them, anything that you can do before you have to move on. At some juncture, you fell in love with and eventually married another foreign correspondent. And you also mm -hmm. talk about the 
a difficult decision to start a family because in the late 70s, it was often a career-ending move for women in high-profile mm -hmm. roles. That's right. I, I was very afraid that uh, I'd lose my job if I were to get pregnant because then they'd say, ah, we'll see what happens you know, when you hire a dame you know, to do a man's job. Uh, she just gets pregnant and then you know, she can't work anymore. Well, as it turned out, that wasn't the attitude of the uh, corporate geniuses in New York. No, they were, when I, when I announced, and I was then based in Israel, that I was uh, going to have a child, they were, they were pretty supportive about it. And it was partly, I think, because of Leslie Stahl, the great Leslie Stahl, who had just had a baby, that I thought, okay, uh, the clock is ticking and maybe, maybe I can, maybe now I can, after how many years that I've been working as a correspondent, five or six years anyway, that I can, that I can do this. And of course, I, I, it was the best thing I ever did. Right. Yeah. So your late husband, John Bierman, he would essentially take or find assignments basically following your career, which is quite a testament to him at the time, because, mm -hmm. you know, usually it's it's the other way around. Yes. John Bierman was an exceptional man. Exceptional. Because he'd had about three careers. He'd started off in newspapers, and then he became managing newspapers. Then he goes into television, becomes uh, you know the first generation of TV foreign correspondents for BBC. And then he ended his life as an author, a biographer. He, he published 10 excellent works of uh, popular historical biography. So by the time we were together, uh, he was just sort of easing out of the news reporting and easing into biography and writing, which was his great love. So I think probably that that helped. And also, you know, I, I he, he just loved me. He loved me worse than all. And he was an immensely flexible man, immensely strong, immen immensely uh, self-sufficient. And, and, and he, he could always be, he was always a, a source of enormous strength and encouragement to me. He wouldn't, if I had to go off on an assignment at short notice, which was usually when you had to go off on assignment, he wouldn't complain and say, you're leaving me in the lurch. What am I going to do? It was, well, see this person, check this out, try this contact. It was, he was just full of advice and good counsel. There is a thread through the book of opportunities you thought you should take and jobs that you actually wanted. And I think this is something a lot of really successful people grapple with. Did your stint with CBC Toronto fall into that category? And, and the ending there is quite interesting. And I, I want to talk about it because a lot of times in these situations, journalists don't air their grievances with management, we kind of just gracefully, you know, fade mm -hmm. into the sunset. But do you want to do you want to talk about your your time at CBC Toronto and how it ended? They, they, they gave me an opportunity that, that I that I at the time I wanted very much. I had this wonderful little boy and a husband who was an author and and I was on the road with ABC for at least 70 percent of the time, maybe 80 percent. And so then I get this offer to 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 anchor in a, the premier city of Canada. And, and uh, I would be at home all the time and I would see my own child and I would watch my child grow up. You know, that, at the time that was very appealing and I do not regret my decision at all, you know, to, to, to accept that job in that position. And they made it as attractive as they could. They gave me 10 weeks paid leave a year, which is, you know, remarkable. 
And during part of that time, I, I would try to do a foreign assignment, you know, a short foreign assignment, just to kind of keep my hand in. It, it worked very well. And I ended up with very good ratings. I think I was, we were number one in uh, our market, but it just happened that the new executive producer didn't especially want a woman aged 50 anchoring the news. And so he took me off the air. But as I say in my book, you know, and at the time it was, uh, it was pretty difficult, but um, I think that it was really, you know, it was a kick in the teeth, but it was actually just the kick I needed because I ended up going back overseas based in London and in Cyprus, working for ABC again, doing what I love best, which is foreign news reporting. And my child was then a teenager and he was probably just as happy to see his mother gone a lot of the time. <laughs> you don't focus a lot on it in the book, but there must have been many experiences where you experienced discrimination as a woman, both in the business and in the course of your work. You know, Connie, Actually, I don't feel, I, I, I did not experience dis, uh, discrimination as a woman at all. I found it, it a total advantage being a woman, almost, almost everywhere, with a few except, exceptions, notably anywhere near an all male Islamic fanatical mob. It's not an advantage to be a female in that situation. And I didn't feel particularly safe as a woman in West Africa. Funnily enough, I mean, I worked and did stories in the Congo, for example. I didn't feel particularly safe. But apart from that, no, no, no. It was good to be female. And in my case, I was a tall female. And you could get the attention of the person, you know, who might be able to help you. So, no, it was always an advantage. I always found it an advantage to be a woman. Mm -hmm. One of the wonderful things for the reader in War Tourist is the picture you paint of all the characters that you met along the way. People like Arlie Mowat, the painter Joe Plaskett, yes. Leonard, Leonard Cohen. In, in addition to a very colorful dating life in your single years, are, are there some all-time personal favorites in terms of people that you met along the way? Well, uh, obviously Leonard was a favorite. I, I knew Leonard in, uh, in uh, Montreal in the, in the 60s, and he was as friendly as a puppy. He was a lot of fun. And I, I think you, you, you may have read my story about Leonard coming up to my apartment one evening with a guitar saying, in that soulful voice of his, I want to be a musician, and I'd like to play you a song. And he started playing Suzanne by the River. And in that monotonous, droning voice of his. And I thought to myself, Leonard, you should stick to poetry. You'll never make it as a musician. <laughs> Which means I should have been a talent scout, shouldn't I? <laughs> I remember that vividly. So Leonard was when Leonard was certainly one of the one of the great friends. And I would see him along the way. I saw him at the Yom Kippur War, funnily enough. We spent the evening together. Another one was obviously John Le Carre whose real name is David Cornwall, the, um, the great writer, who was really the most fascinating, amusing, generous, mesmerizing people I've ever met. And he became the godfather of uh, my son, Jonathan. And we, we remained very good friends for a very long time. He'd be right up there. What's the best story that didn't make it into the book? <laughs> the best story was 
my interview with the Shah of Iran. This is in 1975, roughly, and ABC, knowing that I had lived in Iran, because I'd lived in Iran with John Bierman, my husband, in the early 70s, when he opened the BBC Bureau in Tehran. So they thought I'd be the one to go into Iran and do a series of stories and an interview with the Shah. As it happened, the Shah's interview came up first. So that's just about the first thing we did. And we, get, we go up to Sadabad Palace, where he lived, and we set up, and I start off asking him the usual, you know, softball questions about the economy, broadening the base of the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And then I go into questions of human rights because Iran at the time had a record of human rights that was absolutely appalling. And I started asking the Shah these questions, chapter and verse, and he started to quiver. And she said, are, are these the questions to be asking me, the monarch? And I said, your imperial majesty, uh, these are questions that uh, are on the minds of people in the West. You say you wish your country to become a member of the Club of Western Nations. It's my duty to ask you these questions. But this is outrageous, he says. I, I said, why, I see that only, only a few weeks ago, Mike Wallace of CBS 60 Minutes was asking you questions on the same lines. He's, he said, Mike Wallace was a baby next to you. And then he removed his microphone and stalked off, not giving me a chance to say that is the greatest professional compliment I've ever received in my life. And I sort of, the, my crew just look at me, shooting daggers, saying, God Hills, look what you've done now. You've really dropped us in. It will probably gonna end up in, in being prison. But no, uh, the guards who were stationed in the room didn't move, didn't clap us in irons. So we did our reverse questions. You know, that's the old, fashioned way that you used to pretend you had two cameras, but you only have one, in which I repeat these questions about human rights, to which he'd take such exception. We go back to the hotel and I, and I call um, New York and tell them what's happened. And they say, you know, Hillary, we think maybe you, you better get out of there. You know, you, they may not have taken you away to the prison, to prison today, but, you know, they may, they may uh, have second thoughts. So they pulled us out of there the next day. Flash forward 46 years, I get a call, I'm now in Toronto, from the producer of a do documentary uh, series uh, at PBS called American Experience. He's doing a two hour documentary on America and Iran. He, and he finds out somehow, he knows that I lived in Iran, wants to interview me. He interviews me. And then he says, have you ever, did you ever meet the Shah and talk to him? And, I, and so I told him that interview. I mean, I told him the story of the interview. This guy, his name is Robert Stone. He tracks down that interview. He gets the interview from ABC archives, I assume, gets permission to air it. And it's gonna be broadcast uh, in February, 2022 on PBS as part of their American Experience series. <laughs> For what, after 47 years, I finally make air with this interview. <laughs> <laughs> so how does Hillary Brown's story end. Tell us about your life now. I finally had to, you know, stop working in 19, uh, when was 2009. I was, I was almost 70. I'd hoped to reach age 70, but I didn't quite make it. And then, you know, it was a, kind of at a loose end, you know, my beloved husband had been dead for six, uh, let's see, he'd been dead for um, four or five years. I visit friends. I'm living in London. And friends of mine 
contact me and say, you know, you know, there's this Canadian uh, widower. I really think you ought to meet him. You know, he comes to London a lot. He's very sophisticated. And I say, well, where does he, where does he live? And they say, Edmonton. <laughs> they might as well have said he lives in Siberia. Why would I be interested in an engineer from Edmonton? But nonetheless, I said, okay, okay, give, give him his, give him my email. Uh, it would be nice to meet a compatriot. I'm based in London. I was living in London then. And so we arranged to meet, we arranged, arranged to meet for dinner. I choose the restaurant and I walk in and this, this man is six foot three, gray blue eyes, million dollar smile. And Connie, I was a goner from the moment I laid eyes on. So it didn't take long for us to get together. And he turns out to be uh, an adventurer, a pilot, a skier, a philanthropist, an all-around crazy man who, until the pandemic, just kept me running around the world doing these mad things like whitewater rafting down the Zambezi and, and rappelling down jungle waterfalls in Costa Rica and backcountry skiing in six feet of power snow, powder snow in British Columbia and, and riding through the Rockies on the back of his Harley Davidson. He had kept me in a constant state of excitement and fear. And that's just like being a foreign correspondent all over again. <laughs> <laughs> is there it a thought? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Is there a thought you want to close on, Hillary? My thought is never say die. You know, it ain't over till it's over. And, you know, you can go on and on. As long as you have your health, if you can keep your health, you can go on living and, 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 and enjoying life and maybe helping others if you can until you are no more. We've had a couple of really particularly deadly years for foreign correspondents. Do you have any advice for young journalists uh, who, who, like you, hmm. would like to pursue this in the current climate? Well, it's, uh, it's, it can be dangerous, yes. It really, you must understand that, that it is dangerous. And, and, and there's a, a factor of luck in there. I mean, luck plays a, a, a big part, I think, in, in, in the life of a foreign correspondent. It's, it's like, apparently Napoleon used to say of generals, don't tell me if he's good, tell me if he's lucky. And it's the same with, with foreign correspondents. You know, you've got to have luck. And then we, we often think of our lives, I think of life in, in terms of um, nine lives. You, you have, how many lives do you have? You have nine lives and how many of those nine lives have you used up already? And I think probably when I finally stopped working, maybe I used up six, seven, something like that, that you come that close and that uh, maybe, you know, maybe you want to think about doing something a little more sane. We all mourn the correspondents who've, who've, who've lost their lives working and doing, doing the job they love best and doing, doing a, I think, a kind of a pretty important job. You know, they're bearing witness. You know, they're doing this rough draft of history. And it's, um, I think it's a noble occupation. I do. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. The book is a wonderful read. I highly recommend it. Well, thank you, Connie. It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And it's available in ebook and hardcover and softcover. And I'm afraid that the hard and soft covers could double as a doorstopper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
I'm sorry. I've had a long life and a lot of life. What can I say? And a very interesting and compelling <laughs> life. It's really a fantastic read. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure for me too. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.